want to uh, thank you all for allowing me to uh, preach uh, here again, uh, by God's grace, uh, to the uh, congregation here. So um, I think it's probably best before we plunge into the sermon to uh, start with prayer. So let us pray. Holy Father, we come humbly before you this day in the name of Jesus, and we, we are often troubled even with the great salvation that you've wrought for us, and uh, we are looking uh, now at a people that you, in fact, have called to yourself, and yet uh, how much they flaunted and uh, made light of the gravity of your covenant, and Lord, uh, even though we participate in the uh, new covenant, and that new covenant is uh, a very great assurance that you will not abandon us as you uh, did do them from time to time, yet we know that, uh, as uh, Hebrews have said, that you are an awesome God and that you still are God of judgment. And we pray, God, that uh, as we go through this today, that you might... Uh, put that on our hearts so that even as we are concerned about the, uh, the moral rot within our communities, within the society around us, we might appreciate the fact that it is in the house of God that uh, judgment begins. I ask you to protect us, O oh God, that we will not go down rabbit trails, that in fact you will uh, keep us focused on the uh, richness of your gospel and how it is that you call us to celebrate that in the life uh, that we might find ourselves living. Yeah, now, God, our prayers in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Um, so we, the sermon text, as indicated in the, uh, in the book of Hosea, um, is from five, uh, Hosea 5, 1 through 15. Now, uh, I, I, I don't want to do this, but uh, I, because I'm assuming that everybody know, know who I am, so, uh, but the, 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 uh, the bulletin states it. Uh, Donald Cassell, uh, one of the elders here in the uh, uh, Second Reformed Presbyterian congregation. So that's uh, set. Let's go on to the text and look at it. I, I'm using the NASB, and that is not the text uh, in your pew Bible, but you can still follow it in terms of Hosea 5, 1 through 15. The reason why I use this text is that it has a, it has a closeness to the original language. So uh, I'm not as skilled in it as I used to be when I went to seminary. Uh, but in looking at it while I was in seminary, I found this particular uh, translation to be fairly close to the original text. And sometimes even so, it, it has an awkward reading because it is so very close to the original language. So that's why I am uh, using the text and that's why I have a preference for it because I used it all the time when I was in seminary, etc. And so when I preach, I like to stick with the text. So Hosea, uh, Hosea chapter 5, 1 through 15 from the NASB, the New American Standard Bible. Yet this, O priest, give heed, O house of Israel, listen, O house of the king, for the judgment applies to you, for you have been a snare at Mitzvah, and a net spread out on Tabor, and the revolters have gone deep in depravity. 
but I would chastise all of them. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the harlot. Israel has defiled itself. The deeds will not allow them to return to their God, for a spirit of hollow trace within them, and they do not know the Lord. Moreover, the pride of Israel testifies against him, and Israel and Ephraim stumbled in their, in their iniquity. Judah also has stumbled with them. They will go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt treacherously against the Lord, for they have borne illegitimate children. Now the new moon will devour them with their land. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramon. Sound an alarm at beth Aven. Behind you, Benjamin. Ephraim will become a desolation in the land of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel, I declare what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move a boundary. On them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to follow man's command. Therefore, I am like a moth to Ephraim and like rottenness to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jareb, but he was unable to heal you or to cure you of your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear to pieces and go away. I will carry away and there will be none to deliver. I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. Here ends the reading of God's word. So I have entitled the sermon, uh, as it is in the bulletin, Divine Punishment. Divine Punishment. It's, it, some places have it as judgment, and that's about the same thing. I didn't want to go uh, that because we did dealt with it last Last time I preached on uh, Hosea chapter uh, uh, 4, it was also about judgment, and so the theme continues. So a bit of an introduction here. Uh, This is a continuation of a series that I've begun really several years back, and then that was discontinued for a while, interrupted, and then I think about a year or so ago, I started the series again. The first three chapters uh, we've dealt with, which is really a uh, really remarkable series of chapters, three chapters, the peculiarities, deals with the peculiarities of the prophet's calling uh, that, in, that he had a vocation in the very intimacy of his marriage through pageantry and parable to witness to the rigor and the mercy of God to expose Israel's spiritual idolatry and its consequences, and to speak to the fact of God's unfathomable and inscrutable love and kindness. So if you remember, we dealt with those three chapters, and I was just talking to somebody today after service, 
that the, uh, the remarkable drama, the real life parable, the profundity of it, when you read it, it you almost feel that there is, a, there is a mysterious depth to the love of God, something that we cannot fathom. I, I think that is really what those three chapters display. So you, every time you talk about it, the love of God, love of God, and it seems prosaic almost. But I think in those three chapters, we see something truly mysterious and profound. The mysterious nature and the profundity of the goodness and the love of God. That's what comes through. That's why I said his unfathomable and inscrutable love and kindness. That this love of God is not easily exhausted. You, you, can't, you, can't, you can't hit the depth of it. As said before, the rest of the book, though, going forward in chapter 4 and this, and, and the, until we conclu conclude the, the book as a whole, the rest of the book must be understood through the prison of those three chapters. Again, the rest of the book is an elaboration of these first three chapters, what God does there, both his judgment and the mysterious depth of his love. So chapter 4 makes the case that judgment is necessary, and then we come to chapter 5, uh, which continues with the theme of judgment. The difference here, I think, is... Uh, uh, when you go through it, looking at the, the text yourself, uh, it is the leadership here that is being called out. The leadership is especially being called out. So, dealing with the body of the text, uh, we, uh, we, we have divided uh, the text into two parts. The first part is really from verse 1 to 7, and um, I've entitled it, uh, treachery of, or betrayal, uh, treachery or betrayal, and then uh, the second part, uh, uh, verses eight through fifteen. I'm calling that sickness and worn, sickness and worn. So the first part, verses one through seven, treachery and betrayal. Verse one. So we we'll go through each verse. Uh, here, for the most part, uh, there may be some combinations, but for the most part, each verse. So verse 1 is an address to the leadership of ancient Israel, both the king's household and the priests, civil authorities and the church or ecclesiastical authorities. God will bring judgment against these high authorities, the king and his court, the priests, because they have led Israel into apostasy from God and plunge the people and the kingdom headlong into destruction. Uh, one of the very old commentator, St. Jerome, this is what he had to say of the text, and I got this from uh, Kyle and Dillich. They uh, quoted from uh, Jerome. Kyle and Dillich, is a, these are very major commentators. He says here, uh, this passage, uh, this is the, the, the comment that Jerome made of it. It's sort of almost paraphrasing it. I have appointed you as washmen among the people, 
and set you in the highest place of honor, that you might govern the air and people, but you have become a trap and are to be called sportsmen rather than watchmen. So the thrust there is that the ancient leadership is in fact a part of the problem of ancient Israel at this point in its history. The leadership is part of the problem. Verse 2, the revolters have gone deep into depravity. The rebels no longer feel an inhibition. Darkness is now light to them, and their commitment to error has deepened. But God will chastise these rebels. Transgression against God's law is not without consequence, no matter how much you can sear your conscience. There will still be a consequence with it, uh, coming with it. Verse 3, this people of God's problem is not only idolatry, but also sexual immorality. But really, sexual immorality is in fact a form of idolatry. According to this verse, God sees all. The immorality like hidden, likely hidden from others, the immorality likely hidden from others is not hidden from God. For God says to Israel, I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the harlot. Israel has defiled itself. Verse 4, their deeds of idolatry and sexual immorality, to the extent that they vigorously persist in these evil practices, will not allow them to return to God. For the works are built, uh, I'm sorry, for the works are but emanations of their character and the state of their hearts. So God cannot accept them. And in their hearts sit the demon of idolatry. The continued vigorous practices of sexual immorality and idolatry are the spirit of holotry. That is the spirit of prostitution, which is what holotry is keep referring to here. It's prostitution, prostitution. This demonical power of the spirit of prostitution has taken complete possession of their hearts, stifling the knowledge of God and shielding them from God. Verse 5, to the sin of sexual immorality and idolatry is added the sin of pride. This sin, this sin of pride is in my thinking, and having read others about this, I think C.S. Lewis and some others refer to this, this sin of pride is, is a greater error than the other two sins. The sin of pride has bred confusion and foolishness in them, collectively and individually. So Proverbs 16, 18 says there, Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Of this sin of pride, Judah and the southern kingdom, here is also implicated, even though from time to time the, prophets, the prophet in fact brings in Judah, 
Really, this message is addressed to the northern kingdom, to Israel. Verse 6, as long as they continue vigorously in their sin, they will not find God. As long as they continue vigorously in their sin, they will not find God. Their sin separates them, uh, the sins separate them from God. God will withdraw uh, from a faithless generation. He'll pull himself away. They will not know his presence and will instead visit that generation with his judgment. They will know only the judgment of God. God will not hear their prayers for the state of mind is impenitent. They have no shame or regrets about their actions. That's how you know when you're penitent, when you're really ashamed of your action and you regret it profoundly and you really want to change it. But they do not want to do that. That is not where they are. Verse 7, the scripture says that they dealt treacherously with God. They were hypocritical. They betrayed God's covenant. They acted deceptively to, to God, and they were du duplicitous, dishonest, liars. And now God sees them as illegitimate children. They do not represent his covenant. They do not represent him in the world in that kind of behavior. They do not represent the vocation that he has given to them. They have worked themselves, and yet this, I've seen this happen in the lives of many people, not only amongst Christian people, but in the world, with my international family and all that. They have worked themselves into the state of illegitimacy, becoming a legal pariah. We go on to the second part now, uh, verses uh, 8 to 15, sickness and wound. Sickness and wound. So we do have a couple of verses that we did combine here. So every other verse. So here, verses uh, 8 and 9, I've put those together. So uh, reading, the, reading the exact quotation from the scripture itself. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound an alarm at beth Avent. Behind you, Benjamin, Ephraim will become a desolation in the day of rebuke among the tribes of Israel, I declare what is sure. So when you read the passage together, the impression you get, and I'm interpreting it this way, it's, it's like, preach it. Preach it, brother. Preach it clearly. Let it be made very clear what the consequences are for sin and error. The consequences of sin and error are desolation, waste, and destruction. The holy prophet, speaking of God, declares this to be true. He's saying, this is the law. This is the revelation of God. It's almost like, uh, and we'll probably get to this here. I, I almost want to jump ahead of myself, but maybe I should wait and Google the text, and we'll get to that part when I talk about what is almost seem like it's natural. But the holy prophet uh, speaking of God, declares this to be true. Israel will not escape punishment of her sins. Israel will not escape 
punishment of our sins. And then we come to Romans. I bring in the New Testament here a little bit. We'll deal with that more toward the end. The wages of sin is death. I know the other part of that verse, but we will get to that other part. For right now, keep in that what St. Paul says there is accurate. The wages of sin is death. And then verse 10, God will pour out his anger like water upon the princes of Judah because they have moved boundaries, ancient boundaries. That is, they have engaged in an active violation of law, ancient law foundational law, fundamental law, long-established divine commandments concerning God and humanity. And they've tried to twist that around. These princes or elites of the land have become transgressive and they are bold and confident in their transgression. And now, Verse uh, 11, and now they have become so stubborn and obstinate, being dominated by evil passions. So they're stubborn and obstinate in their evil passions, being dominated by evil passions. This is the way to think now. This is how the world is. No matter that they are being oppressed and crushed, broken into pieces by God's judgment, because of their sins, they remain committed to their sinful ways. So the judgment God is bringing, they can't see through it. No, something, we're going to take care of this problem differently. They are focused on their sinful ways. They are learning nothing from their sufferings, even though sin is bringing ruin to their country. Still not, not understanding what God is teaching them. Verse 12, but God will not let up on his discipline. Even though they do not know and they're behaving foolishly, God will press down harder. He will not let up on his discipline. In his righteousness, he cannot. So God will not let up on his di discipline, but in his righteousness, God cannot let up on his discipline. And if they remain determined in their transgressions, God will continue to press hard in his judgment until they change or are destroyed. God's wrath remains steadfast. And it is, and this is where I wanted us to go, it is almost as if it is a natural response to sin and evil. So the, 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 one time I think doing a bit of research on the wrath of God, thing to understand is that it's not something that happens, uh, you know, it's an emotional response, all of that, but it's, it's something that is against sin. So anywhere there is sin and problem, it becomes that. That's the natural response from God, if you like. So, I mean, we can <laughs> talk with me about this later or challenge me on it, but that is in fact the case, is that when there is sin, or problems is that immediately, that is what you get. You begin to experience the wrath of God. It is almost a natural response. And I say almost because you can't talk about natural with God, supernatural. But that is an automatic response. The automatic response is one of wrath against sin 
and error, sin and evil. And this is from the great commentators, Carl and Dillage. They, they say here, God, God becomes a destructive power to the sinner through the thorn of conscience and the chastisement which are intended to affect his reformation, but which laid inevitably in his ruined when he hardens himself against them. The preaching of the law by the prophets sharpened the thorn, sharpened the thorn in the conscience of Israel and Judah. The chastisement consisted in the affliction of the punishments threatened in the law vis-a-vis -vis plagues and invasions of the foes, etc. And what he's getting at is that all these things that are happening now to Israel has been there from the beginning. So if you go through the five books of Moses, he talks about the blessings and he talks about the curses. And the prophets are only, now that the people are behaving the way they are, the prophets are bringing up the fact that the curses are there. And those curses had always been there in the five books of Moses. The prophets here almost being uh, expositors, preachers of the five books of Moses. In uh, verse 13, incredibly, incredibly, Ephraim and Judah seek relief in Assyria, in man, an earthly power, and in their enemy to boot such foolishness. The people of God, notwithstanding the revelation and the law, the prophet and the sages, go to pagan enemies for relief. So I'm saying all these people there, it's not like you are poor struggling people uh, that don't have these kinds of advantages. Think about poor Liberia or African countries that don't have prophets, don't have sages, don't have uh, all sorts of learned people to to be a blessing to them. They do here, but rather than go to those people to help them, they in fact go to a pagan enemy, somebody that already wants your territory for relief. They are looking in all the wrong places. They've missed the point, missed the mark. The problem is a moral problem. It is a sin it is the sin of apostasy from God. Or you can say it's a sin problem. And it is this sin that has generated that, their problems. There's no way the king of Assyria can deal with that. No matter how great that king is, he cannot deal with a sin problem. No one can. So that, I guess what I'm saying, even if you had a wash, a wash pagan sage, say even like a the great Confucius of China, he still could not deal with a sin problem. Cannot. Even if you had the great Buddha of India, he still could not deal with the sin problem. So it's even more ridiculous that you would go to an Assyrian king to deal with a sin problem. Verse 14, God promises to destroy Ephraim and Judah. He represents himself, this is how he portrays himself, as a young lion, vigorous, in the prime of his, youth, of his strength, rather, tearing Israel to pieces in judgment for the sin. There is no help coming from Assyria. Israel is not able, I'm sorry, Assyria is not able to help them, as we said. Cannot, not able, cannot help them. No man can help them, as we said, with their problem. Only God can help them with their problem. 
It is a God-sized problem in need of a God-sized solution. It is a God-sized problem in need of a God-sized solution. So come to the last verse, verse 15. God remains merciful and leaves for Israel a way of escape. Again, and this is how these prophecies always go. They never end completely in a negative mode. They always, there's always room. There's always restoration. So verse 15, God remains merciful and leaves for Israel a way of escape via confession and repentance. He says here, you can see the, the, uh, uh, the personal nature of God. It's uh, what uh, a great uh, Protestant theologian, uh, Francis Schaeffer, used to call the infinite personal God. And, and it comes true here. This is only a personal God that can say these kinds of things. I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. And the encouragement here is that God has not given up on Israel. He has not abandoned Israel. Despite all, God is still a merciful God. He will deprive them of his gracious, helpful presence until they re repent and feel themselves guilty by hearing, uh, by bearing rather the punishment. So uh, the, the thing here is that he, the, the, he is still waiting for the, uh, the chastisement, the punishment to bear fruit, which will a kind of reformation to restore his people to the covenant to himself. So suffering, I think this is also a quotation from uh, Kylan Dillich, Suffering, suffering punishment awakens the need of mercy and impels them to seek the face of God. That's the hope. That's the hope that suffering punishment will cause them to plead, ask God for mercy, and to go and seek God again. So this is uh, our analysis, and now we come to uh, what we call a summary text, a best verse. I go back a hundred years in this congregation, so I still remember those things. But uh, uh, it's basically a summary text. And uh, if you look at some of the old commentators like uh, uh, Charles Holch from uh, Princeton, uh, they, they also follow a similar uh, layout in terms of how you deal with a text. So the best verse here is verse 15. I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. It's a wonderful passage, wonderful verse. What would be our commitment to this, uh, what we have just heard? What will be our commitment? Uh, our commitment here, I, I think, uh, is, a, is a call to self-reflection on your sin personally. A call to self-reflection on your sin personally, a call to self-reflection on my sin personally. We are here called to confess our sins individually, individual persons, and collectively as families and as a congregation, as a church. Let us pray for commitment to repentance 
and change for the better, turning away from our sins, turning away from our sins. The sin here in our study today is in fact idolatry, and the other sin that we mentioned is uh, sexual immorality, though in fact um, the third sin mentioned here in this text was one of pride. So we, we had three that was mentioned here. I would say that it is all applicable now as it was then. The sin of sexual immorality reaches like a wildfire within, within this society and within our midst. Idolatry is closely related to that and it is here also within our midst, even within modern society. And the sin of pride is humongous amongst us. So all of these sins is not only applicable to an ancient people, but it's applicable now to us. So confess the sins of our community and pray for mercy. Yet when there is disorder in that community, we must start by making sure that there is good order in ourselves individually and in our families and our congregations. In all of these things, we must hold fast to our Lord Jesus Christ. Begging for mercy for ourselves and others and more. So beg for mercy for ourselves and others, but there's more to it. That we should grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To be like him and so to witness and so to witness to the gospel to be like him and so to witness to the gospel, to the kingdom of God that has now come into the world. We're going back to that uh, Romans uh, 6.23 verse that we quoted further uh, up there. And let's read this whole thing through. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So that's the message. The sin is a very real thing. The wages of sin is in fact death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then Galatians 5.22 in terms of how to live. What, what uh, I mean there are various levels in terms of where we are uh, along uh, long spectrum, I guess. We, we all at different levels of growth. Yet, these things must be true. Galatians uh, uh, 5, 23 to 20, uh, 22 to 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Let us pray. Holy Father, we come humbly before you this day. We thank you, God, for granting grace that we are able to go through your word and to hear it proclaim and to read it. And we thank you, God, for the advantages that you have given to us that we are within the United States and can be able to do this thing freely. We know that people in other countries are not able to do it. Think particularly of China, where this cannot happen. And we uh, thank you, God, for the teachers that you sent to us here. We know that in other places, uh, Liberia and many others like it, they do not have teachers to appropriately teach them. 
your word. So we thank you so much for that. We pray that we might not take these things for granted. And uh, we pray that we, we do not uh, become fat on the blessings that you've given to us. But rather, oh God, uh, we, uh, we are anxious to witness to the world, to reflect your glory in the world. And it was, was preached, I think, this morning that the desire to give our life as a, a sacrifice to you, uh, that, oh God, it will, uh, it's more a form of gratitude. Indeed, you have done for us everything in our Lord Jesus Christ and our desire to live like him, to be like him, to reflect his life in the world and to, to be that people will see within us that the kingdom of God has indeed come into the world is the great gratitude. We are so grateful and the spirit that works within us. And so, God, we pray. We thank you for the promise that you've given to the new covenant that this kind of uh, abandonment and, and loss that you did with uh, your people in the old covenant, that the new covenant has promised that that will not happen to us. And yet, we know that there is a place for judgment and so we ought not to take it for granted either. And we pray, God, that a word like this will be as much a warning to us as it was to your ancient people. Yet now, O oh God, our prayers in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.